Coming up on this week's episode of The Doctor's Pharmacy. It is nearly impossible to make a living selling vegetables on a small scale. Yeah. You know, 95% of small farmers are relying on second, third jobs. And so we have to, as a public, figure out how to stop subsidizing the stuff that's trashing the planet and our health and start, quote, subsidizing the things that are bringing life. Hey, everybody, it's Dr. Mark Hyman. Imagine that there was one place that had everything you need to eat and live well. From your favorite foods like organic dark chocolate, wild-caught salmon, to your favorite natural cleaning supplies, and even your favorite supplements and skincare items. What if there was one place that covered all the bases? Well, there is, and it's Thrive Market. And they help me stay fully stocked in all the high-quality items I love at incredible prices. So you've probably seen some pretty expensive organic coconut oils out there at your local market, which is why I'm excited to tell you about Thrive Market's organic virgin coconut oil. They offer a value size that's an incredible savings compared to what you find in most stores. And I love having this big container on hand so I never run out. Not only does Thrive Market offer 25 to 50% off all of my favorite brands, but they also give back. For every membership purchase, they give a membership to a family in need and they make it easy to find the right membership for you and your family. You can choose from a one month, three month, or 12 month plan. I go with the 12 month because it only adds up to $5 a month and I save hundreds on my grocery bill throughout the year. And right now, Thrive is offering all Doctors Pharmacy listeners a great deal. You'll get up to $20 in shopping credit when you sign up to spend on all your own favorite natural food, body, and household items. And anytime you spend more than $49, you get free carbon neutral shipping. All you have to do is head over to thrivemarket.com forward slash Hyman. That's thrivemarket.com forward slash Hyman. I think you're going to love them as much as I do. I'm proud to have them as a sponsor and be an investor in their company. Well, I'm willing to bet that you're like me. And that one of the first signs of aging you noticed was on your skin. Now, those fine lines and wrinkles and uneven spots start to creep in. And we can see an overall decline in the texture and firmness we used to have in our skin. And you'll notice it takes longer for wounds to heal too and that scars might be more noticeable. It's actually more than just appearance. It's a sign of the aging processes happening below the surface of the skin in our cells. And one big reason for that is that as we age, we produce less collagen. Collagen is the most abundant protein in the body and it's really like the glue that holds everything together. So supporting collagen production can make a huge difference for helping our skin and the rest of our body stay young. So I always love checking out the latest science for anti-aging and healthy aging. And I recently discovered a new device called Juve. It's a red light therapy device. Red light therapy is a super gentle, non-invasive treatment where a device with medical grade LED lights delivers concentrated light to your skin. It actually helps your cells produce collagen so it improves skin tone and complexion. It diminishes the sign of aging like wrinkles and speeds the healing of wounds and scars. And it couldn't be easier. I just stand in front of this relaxing red light for a few minutes a day and that's it. Not only is Juve great for your skin, but it can also help you recover from injuries, aches and pains, and help you sleep better. To check out Juve products for yourself, head over to juve.com forward slash pharmacy. That's J-O-O-V-V.com forward slash pharmacy. That's F-A-R-M-A-C-Y. And once you're there, you'll see a special bonus the Juve team is giving away to my listeners. Just use the code pharmacy, F-A-R-M-E-C-Y, at the checkout. This is one of the simplest tools you can use to fight aging and to boost collagen production that's available to use right in your own home. And I hope you check it out to see why I love using Juve. 
Welcome to the Doctor's Pharmacy. I'm Dr. Mark Hyman. That's Pharmacy with an F, a place for conversations that matter. And if you care about your food, this conversation is going to matter to you because it's with an extraordinary woman who's really revolutionizing how we think about food, how we grow it, and who we grow it for, and addressing issues around food injustice and food apartheid, which not many people are actually talking about, surprisingly, because it's such a big problem. She is an educator, farmer, Paisan. She's Creole. Her family's from Haiti, and she's an author, uh, an activist uh, from Soulfire Farm in Grafton, New York. She f- co-founded the farm in 2010 with the mission to end racism in the food system and reclaim our ancestral connection to the land. As co-executive director, Leah is part of a team that facilitates powerful food sovereignty programs, including farmer training for black and brown people, a subsidized farm distribution program for communities living under food apartheid, and domestic and international organizing toward equity in the food system. Thank God for that. (laughs) (laughs) Leah has been farming since uh, 1996. She has a master's in education and BA in environmental science from Clark University. Her work has been recognized and the work of Soulfire Farm by the Soros Racial Justice Fellowship, Fulbright Program, Grist 50, the James Beard Award, and on and on. And her book, which everybody should get, is called Farming While Black, Soulfire Farm's Practical Guide the liberation on the land, and it's a love song for land and her people. Thank you for being here, Leah. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. So um, you're you're doing an extraordinary thing, which is changing the conversation about food, farming, and race, and the injustice in our food system. Everybody talks about eating healthy and addressing chronic disease through food. Not many people are talking about food injustice or food oppression or food racism. And you are. How did you figure this out? Like, what what was the thing that got you uh, into farming? It was it was sort of an accident. Talk about how that all got connected. Wow. Well, I mean, there's a lot of beginnings to every story, but uh, part of my beginning was growing up in a small, rural, working class, mostly white town. And to be really frank, you know, the kids at school were not kind to my siblings and I. We were the only brown family in the school, and. Uh, had a hard time making friends, experienced a lot of bullying. And it was the forest, it was the land that was really a solace for me. Mm. Um, I considered the trees my closest and best friends, worked hard to defend them from a young age. (laughs) They do actually talk back. They don't bully you. (laughs) They don't, but they offer a lot of support and guidance about right relationship. And so um, I think it was my connection to land that drove me to eventually look for a job, a career that was related to land stewardship. And so I found farming as a teenager and I mm. haven't looked back. Amazing. And um, you were working at something called the Food Project when you were 16. How did that affect your future and the work you're doing today? Absolutely. So I spent uh, summers in Boston with my mom. I spent the school years with my dad in rural Ashburnham. And the Food Project was uh, generous enough to give me a summer job at 16 planting carrots, hoeing rows, you know, running a farmer's market. And it was really transformative for me because at a time when, you know, the teenage years are tumultuous, there's lots of questions around identity and belonging, and farming is undeniably good. You have the opportunity to put a seed in the ground, harvest, feed the community, and no one can deny that that is a noble contribution to society. And so that beautiful nexus between environmental care and social care um, was deeply healing and meaningful for me. And so I went on to work at several other farms throughout my teenage years. Well, you know, it's interesting, you know, we, we, we've sort of had our entire country built on the backs of slavery and the agrarian wisdom of the Africans who were involuntarily brought over here 
to grow food for mm -hmm. Americans and to literally build the U.S. economy. Um, and so a lot of um, you know, African Americans see farming as a reversion to slavery, plantation life. There's a sort of negative connotation mm -hmm. about it. But somehow you've really reframed that and, and are bringing back the original wisdom that has sort of long been in that culture. Can yeah, you talk about I mean, that? it's so true. I think there's a lot of um, agricultural practices that we take for granted as ahistorical or European that actually have African roots. So things like regenerative agriculture, you know, that comes out of the work of Dr. George Washington Carver in the late 1800s at Tuskegee University. Yeah. Black professor who started extension agencies, started, you know, cover cropping and crop rotation in this country. Um, you look all the way back to Cleopatra who came up with composting and, you know, <laughs> raised beds from the Obambo people. So there's there's so many technologies. And I think that, um, well, I certainly don't blame our people for uh, feeling triggered by the land. You know, the land was the scene of the crime, as Chris Bolden Newsom would say. Uh, but we can actually reach back beyond that to reclaim a noble and dignified relationship to land. And I'm part of a returning generation that's excited to do that. Yeah, I mean, because, you know, in, in a way, part of the solution to poverty and injustice in our food system is bringing everybody back into right relationship with our food and our land. And that, you know, that's a very novel concept, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, Fannie Lou Hamer said, if you have 400 quarts of greens and gumbo soup canned for the winter, nobody can push you around or tell you what to do, <laughs> which I, I think that. is brilliant. Because if, if you think about that, right, you know, right. if they if you don't have anything canned for the winter, you don't have a farm or anything, if they put chains around that supermarket, you're going to put down your protest sign, put down your ballot and, you know, crawl through the dust to get food for your children. And so fundamentally, whoever controls the food and the land really controls the population. Yeah. Um, and and we, we're seeing that now with, with power outages and grocery stores shuttering, you know, the way that it wreaks havoc in society. So part of our collective survival is to reclaim an agrarian tradition and our relationship to land. So powerful. Now, you were in 2006, a long time ago, you were living with your husband in South End of Albany uh, near, uh, you know, the capital, New York State. And you said it was easier to get weapons and drugs than healthy food and that your neighborhood was a place of food apartheid, which is really an interesting term. I want to get into that, but there were no grocery stores, farmer's markets, fast food and uh, bodegas in every corner, just selling processed junk and alcohol. And, and um, it sort of helped you catalyze a lot of what your thinking was and what you're doing. Um, and why why is this whole term food apartheid the, the right term that we should be using instead of talking about food deserts? Sure. Uh, so there's a lot there. I mean, a food desert implies a natural ecosystem, right? It's the term the USDA uses for a high poverty neighborhood without grocery stores. But there's nothing natural about a system where certain people have yeah, access to food opulence and others food scarcity. And I say man on purpose. <laughs> right. So it's, it's apartheid. It's apartheid. And, um, you know, there's a whole history of like redlining and housing discrimination that's led to neighborhoods um, that don't have these resources. And and I think for me, uh, living with my children who were quite small then, Nishima was two, Emmett was a newborn. And as you said, there were no grocery stores, farmers markets, places to have a garden. And so we ended up joining a CSA program, so like a subscription program that cost more than our rent and had to walk over two miles to get the vegetables, pile them onto the laps of the sleeping children in the stroller, go back down. Like that was the only way to get vegetables. Mm. And so when our neighbors found out that we knew how to farm, there was a clamor for us to create the farm for the people. Um, and that was where the idea for Soul Fire Farm came about. Wow. And and so food apartheid really is a better way of describing sort of the intentional segregation, the deliberate policies, the redlining, which you described, mm -hmm. which maybe you could explain, that led to this 
incredible disparity in access to food and also in the health disparities that result from that because we're seeing this tremendous increase in diseases in African-American and Latino populations. It's not an accident. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So food apartheid is the right term because as you mentioned, um, if you are black or brown, you know, Latinx, indigenous, you're much more likely to struggle with diabetes, heart disease, and other diet-related illnesses. Not to be clear because we don't know how to make good food choices or know how to cook food or want those foods. It's really because of access. If you have $3 in your pocket and you live in a food apartheid zip code, you can get some hot Cheetos and blue colored drink, but you cannot get a burrito, a salad or anything like that. Nothing. Um, and so it's really a, a tragedy um, that is rooted in institutional racism because as I mentioned in the 1930s, um, the federal government commissioned these maps to be made of neighborhoods. Uh, that ranked them from most desirable to lend down to least desirable. And the communities of color were outlined in red as too risky um, to lend, uh, too risky to have a mortgage, too risky to own homes. And so yeah. the wealth disparity has grown and the property ownership disparity has grown and, and with it, um, these neighborhood conditions. Incredible. You know, and I think uh, people don't realize the, the magnitude of the health disparities that exist out there. You know, diabetes, heart disease, chronic illnesses, kidney failure, hypertension, that affect black and indigenous people, Native Americans, mm -hmm. Latinos, far more than whites. If you're African-American, you're 80% more likely to be diagnosed with type two diabetes. You're four times as likely to have kidney failure. You're three and a half times more likely to have amputations from diabetes as whites. And, and it also somehow connects to sort of how our whole system is operating. It's almost like a weapon that is used against these populations, not necessarily intentionally always, but it sort of has been the, unintended result of our food policies, of our ag policies. And you know, the way I think about it is we're, we're facing an unprecedented proliferation of biological weapons of mass destruction, mm -hmm. our processed food, which kills literally 40 to 50 million people a year globally mm. from hypertension. So um, how do you see the role of the farmer shifting this systemic violence, this, these biological weapons of mass destruction, as I call them, and how do we do that? I mean, what you said is so powerful because food has intentionally been used as a weapon. I mean, you look at the Greenwood food blockades that were used to punish civil rights activity, literally cutting off food supplies to black communities in the 1960s for the audacity to try to register to vote. Um, and so I actually don't think it's an accident that our our schools, our urban schools, our prisons are filled with these highly processed foods because a population that's not well is not going to resist. Mm -hmm. You know, if I'm not feeling well and I'm I'm dealing with diabetes, kidney issues, I'm not going to show up for a town hall and tell my senator yeah. what they should be doing, right? And so I yeah. I don't think I don't think it's um yeah. entirely an accident, but I do um, I do believe it's not just farmers who are responsible for the solution. It's obviously everyone in the food system. Yeah, but farmers do have a unique role to play because we have an opportunity one to see where our food's going and to do what we can to make sure there's equitable equitable distribution. We have the opportunity to make sure that our farm workers are treated fairly, you know, signing on to programs like the uh, Food Justice Certified. And, and we have a unique voice where we can really get bipartisan ear. Uh, farming is considered a like everybody kind of issue. So we can be telling policymakers yeah. about the shifts that need to happen on a systemic level. Exactly. And I, I think, you know, we are, are seeing a, you know, a, a farm system that also, you know, sort of has sort of generated out of a series of policies that have led to the overproduction of these highly processed foods and, and the, you know, poor and minorities are targeted by the food industry with extra marketing for these foods. When SNAP or food stamps mm -hmm. come on, 
with your monthly stipend, it's usually at the beginning of the month. And that's when there's maximum advertising in all these bodegas and local stores for more soda and more junk food. So it's it's a sort of an intentional process. And, it, and the other thing that is, is that I not well understood, I think my most, is that your cognitive development depends on your nutrition. Mm -hmm. So if you're growing up in a poor community with lack of access to nutritious food, with lack of vitamins and minerals and phytonutrients and all the things you need to create your healthy brain, these kids are not going to be cognitively where they need to be. I mean, I, I mean, even, even, um, you know, the exposure on, on farms to pesticides, these kids have lost, uh, you know, 41 million IQ points in farm mm. and food workers, which are among the most dangerous occupations in this country because of the use of these industrial agricultural chemicals. So, you know, we have both the issue of, you know, food justice, but we also have like the environmental racism and, and environmental justice that's connected to the food system because most of the workers on farms today are brown, mostly Latino workers or migrant workers. They're not protected by the farm, I mean, the uh, the, the Labor, Fair Labor Act that was in the mm -hmm. 30s because they were excluded mostly because at the time they were mostly African-Americans doing the work. And uh, and it's it's a, a biggest, it's a big barrier. So what are, what are the biggest barriers you see to what you describe as decolonizing farming? And can you just take a minute to describe what is the colonization of our food system? Because I think people don't understand that we have a colonization of our food system. Ooh, yeah, absolutely. Know, sorry, that was a lot. That was a lot. <laughs> environmental justice, I agree, is absolutely a, a huge issue, first of all, because we're talking about who's getting environmental benefits and who's suffering from environmental harms. Pesticide exposure, extreme heat uh, from climate chaos. We're talking about the Abuse. effluent from hog farms and, yeah. you know, toxic and, and emissions. And are, you know, abused, mm -hmm. sexual abuse and all absolutely. sorts of, yeah. So I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned because those issues are certainly linked. I mean, the colonization of the food system is the imposition of European control, uh, power, and European norms over our food system. And it's quite pervasive. Um, I'll tell a quick story just to illustrate one example of it. Um, you take maize, 9,000-year-old staple crop. Um, it was a gift from Sky Woman to the indigenous people of Turtle Island of this continent. Mm -hmm. It was given to prevent starvation in combination with um, her sisters, beans and squash, to be grown together, yeah, right? right? You all right. heard of the three of course, sisters. intercropping, right? Yeah, and there's Which many, is... many um, origin stories. But the condition was that, that need to be, the gift of maize needed to be uh, shared freely. So the colonizers got some too, right, as a gift. That's right. how they stayed alive. But look what they did with maize. Tore her away from the sisters, monocrop, uh, laden with uh, chemicals, pesticides, leading to the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico, turned into corn syrup, pumped into the veins of our children, driving the diabetes epidemic, right? And um, genetically modified, BT, terminator seed, all of this. And so you and look at- we could at, go on and on. Looking I at mean, maize, right, yeah. is just one example of colonization of the food system. You look yeah. at the fact that the soil has lost over 50% of its organic matter, 50% of its carbon is burned up into the atmosphere. Yeah. That was the beginning of, of climate change, yeah. was the 1800s opening of the Great Plains, you yeah. know? And so- and we, just, um, we, we had extractive yeah. agriculture that exactly. wasn't regenerative, and that, that's led to this massive climate change crisis. And I think we've talked about on the show, but you know, our food system end to end is the number one cause of climate change. Absolutely. And people don't realize that. It's about 50%, whereas fossil fuels are about 30%. And mm -hmm. it's not just the factory farming of cows, it's everything from deforestation to land mm -hmm. destruction to food waste and so forth. So. You know, you you don't just talk about this stuff. You got your hands in the dirt. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and you are not just talking the talk. You're walking the walk. And you created an extraordinary place called Soulfire Farm, which I read a lot about. I watched movies about it. I'm super impressed with what's going on there because you're helping 
you know, your community and poor communities sort of understand the benefit of the land and becoming farmers and training them to become farmers. And then you're doing all sorts of collateral good in the community by providing food for ex-cons who can't get food or for immigrants who can't actually afford food. I mean, it's really amazing. So tell us what you think the role of Soulfire Farm is in creating a new food system. Wow. Yeah. So, <laughs> Sorry, I'm putting you on the spot. <laughs> so, no, it's my heart work. Um, so Soulfire Farm, we are a community farm. There's eight of us up on the land, up in the mountains of Grafton, New York. I'm and coming to visit. Please do. Every month we have a community day. Everyone can come. Um, but we're dedicated to ending racism in the food system. And we're doing that in three basic ways, right? The first is to regenerate the 80 acres that we get to steward of Mohican territory. So we're using all these Afro-Indigenous technologies to heal the land, produce food, and get that to the people who need it most through a doorstep delivery program. That's the first thing. The second thing is to equip black and brown farmers through our training programs and mentorship, helping people get the knowledge and land and credit they need. And then the final thing is mobilizing public support, trying to change policy, get reparations for farmers, uh, reparations for indigenous people who've lost their land and so forth. And um, you know, it's been really heartening because we actually haven't had to convince people that this is worth doing. I thought I'd be all alone in the hills, but our waiting list for our programs are years long because we want to get back to the land as a people. I mean, you know, uh, most people aren't aware that uh, Lincoln, when he freed the slaves, promised 40 acres and a mule, which uh, Andrew Johnson, the president who got impeached mm -hmm. right after him, <laughs> um, revoked. Yep. And it's been estimated that if that was in place, that there'd be a land worth $4.6 trillion in the African-American community, which has been usurped for them. And then at the turn of the century, you know, 14% of farms compared to less than 1% of farmers now were African-American and they were in the South and they were threatening the existing status quo down there. And the people who were running those farms were lynched, their homes were burned, their farms destroyed, their land was taken over. And it's just, it's, it's a legacy that people just don't realize that this was, this is sort of a, a uh, injustice that's never been talked about, that really never been really addressed. And and uh, and maybe we need to give back that $4.6 trillion of land. <laughs> we absolutely do. Because you mentioned reparations, yeah. and I think, you know, that's what mm -hmm. I made me think about it. Yeah, because 40 acres and a mule was a broken promise. You know, all of the land that uh, black folks got was purchased off their own dime, uh, despite the oppressive sharecropping and convict leasing conditions. And it wasn't just the violent lynching and terrorism that drove people off the land. It was the federal government itself. You know, the USDA um, in the 1962 Commission of Civil Rights report was named as the number one uh, culprit in the decline of the black farmer. Uh, Reagan later closed that office. He didn't like their findings, but uh, that's why black farmers sued the government. They won a settlement of $2 billion in 1999, the Pigford case, which was the yeah. largest a civil rights settlement in U.S. history. Wow. But by then, most of the farmers were in their 90s and 50,000 is not going to get you back your land. So it was really a symbolic victory. So, so you know, you, you point out that, you know, partly as a result of the broken promise of 40 acres and a mule and many other sort of <laughs> deliberate and political and, and social injustices that happened, you, you talk about, um, you know, how there's been an, starting to be an increase in African-American farmers, you know, it used to be 14%. Now it's like maybe one or 2%. One and a half, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but you see that changing. And I, I just saw this incredible graph in one of your articles where there was this complete divergence, you know, where white farmers are going down, but mostly because they're aging out of farming and no one's coming in new. And African-American farmers are going up. 
Well, the the USDA actually just got called out for fluffing up its numbers in the 2017 census. Oh, okay. So we're not exactly sure if black farmers are on the rise, according to the USDA count. I will say, though, that um, as someone who focuses on training a returning generation of black farmers, um, that there is a clamor, there is an interest, and there are a number of success stories on an anecdotal level. And so we're hoping to see some legitimate shifts upward in the coming mm. census. You know, it's, it's you know I, I work a lot in Cleveland and I go through some of the poorest areas there and see, you know, the, the way people live, the lack of access to food. And, you know, I, you know, it strikes me that, that they're in this vicious cycle that they can't get out of and that, you know, thinking about how to bring, and I know it's not your expertise, but how to bring farming and, and community agriculture back into these communities. I, I was at uh, Ebenezer Baptist Church a number of years ago and, you know, they had a, a two acre plot, like right near the church in, mm -hmm. in the middle of Atlanta was a massive farm where they're, Church members were growing the food, they were eating the food, they were distributing it to the communities that needed it. I was really like, wow, this is a model that could be scaled. And Absolutely. So so how do you see that being part of the solution? Because I, I it, it is something I struggle with. It's like I, you see the problem is so tough. I mean, I'm, I'm working in Cleveland, we're working with a, uh, a group there of, uh, you know, really underserved African-Americans who are very... Um, you know, sick, they have diabetes, they have kidney failure, they have all these issues. And uh, and we're, we put them in a group together, we're using community-based solutions, we're going to them, we're teaching them how to cook and shop, and and they want it so bad, but nobody ever has helped them. And uh, and they're losing weight and they're feeling good and it's just, it's amazing. But, you know, like these these are just really neglected communities and it's in the, and it's bankrupting our country like we should care about it because mm -hmm. a big part of our 22 trillion dollar debt is the cost of healthcare so how how do you see intervening in these communities as well because i i think how how do you bring people up to say okay well you know farming is not about slavery it's not about working on a plantation it's actually my salvation it's what you know you know, my ancestors did and brought to America and I should be proud of it, which is what you're trying to say. But how, how do you get people's mindset to change around that? Absolutely. I mean, I would say at least half of our graduates from our week-long uh, beginning farmer training program go on to start urban farms or work on urban farms. So it's really part of the same solution. Um, and I think it's a false dichotomy between the rural and urban. Yeah. Um, I'd want to shout out, you know, if you look at Reverend Heber Brown's Baltimore Black yeah. Church yeah. Community Food Security yeah. Network, he realized, you know, that black churches are actually the biggest landholders in the black community. Yes. And so is, as you as you saw in Atlanta, you know, putting in gardens, also sourcing from rural black farmers and getting that food to right. uh, urban black community. And so it's happening in Chicago. It's happening in Detroit with uh, D-Town Farm, yeah. Malik Akini's work. Um, so we're very excited to be collaborating and have found that it's not so much, again, that we need to convince people. I think the will is there. It's often the resources that are lacking. So yeah. if we can make sure that folks don't have to pay a high water bill and that they have yeah. the tools and the land and, you know, institutional support, website development, whatever the thing is that they need, um, it emerges. And so, you know, we don't even have to evangelize. That's crazy. I mean, you know, Heber Brown said, uh, the pastor in Baltimore said, you know, we're losing more people to suites than the streets because he mm -hmm. was, you know, ministering to his congregation and seeing how many people are dying from all the food they're eating. So it's a, it's an, I think it's an important solution to empowering people, getting them out of poverty, giving them food sovereignty in ways that, that, you know, there aren't, there aren't a lot of solutions that people are offering. And I think this is a powerful one. You know, I think, um, it, it, you know, but it's still hard for people of color to become farmers. So um, how, how do we overcome those obstacles? 
Yeah, absolutely. So uh, recently, the USDA, again, we, we looked at their numbers and they're still giving out a disproportionate amount of their resources to white farmers, large farmers, corporate farmers. And so we need an overhaul of the Civil Rights Commission and the USDA to address that discrimination. Is there a Civil Rights Commission at the USDA? There is. And they have a multi-year backlog of complaints that are unaddressed. And so we've been meeting... <laughs> and is there one 75-year-old lady running the whole thing or what? <laughs> oh, it is a hot mess. But I will tell you, you know, we've been talking to uh, Senator Sanders, Senator Warren, other uh, politicians for the first time are interested in the plight of the black farmer. And so hopefully we'll get those uh, cases addressed of discrimination so people can get their loans and crop allotments and technical assistance. I think also we need massive land reform. You know, 98% of the rural land is owned by white people right now. That's mm. the highest amount of, of land concentrated in the hands of European Americans ever in the history of this country. And so we really need to look at a patchwork of land trust and land link and land transfer to make sure that 40 there acres is, and a mule. Yeah, exactly. 40 <laughs> acres and a mule in 2019, 2020, right? <laughs> Maybe not a mule. Maybe some other tools. <laughs> Four you know, acres and a couple tractors. But what's really fascinating about this conversation is that if you do the right thing for the land, you do the right thing for humans, you do the right thing for climate, you do the right thing for biodiversity, do the right thing for our wa scarce water resources, right? You do the right thing for all the things that matter. You do the right thing for injustice. You do the right thing for our economy. You do the right thing for health. It's like, it seems like too good to be true, but is that how you see it? I do think it's all really connected. You know, um, some of my mentors have taught me how to farm in Ghana. They're called the queen mothers, so these elder women who are just badass in every way. But they said, you know, Amida, is it true? Leah, is it true that if you have um, want to plant a seed on your farm in the United States, like you don't pray over it or sing or dance or say thank you to the ground, right? You expect the seed to grow. I admitted that was true. And they said, that's why you're all sick. You know, <laughs> you're all sick because you treat the earth like a commodity and not like right. a, a family member. And so I do think that the reverence that we have for the earth, by extension, the way we treat the land is going to be mirrored in the way we treat ourselves and our human communities. I mean, you're, you're so right about this because when you look at the, at the impact of re Regenerative Ag to reverse all the, the wrongs to our earth and to humans, it has so much potential. It's like a I, I wouldn't say it's the entire solution, but it's a big solution if we scale this. And I think, uh, and in doing all the things I said by producing better quality food where the farmers are happier, they're healthier, they make more money mm -hmm. producing food that's good for humans, that's actually reverses climate change, that actually d doesn't deplete our scarce freshwater resources, that increases the biodiversity, protects our pollinators. I mean, there's all this downstream benefits. And, and it's like, it's like a duh, but uh, it's still sort of this, people, when you say regenerative, like, what's that, right? Yeah, I mean, regenerative ag, I, I think we got to give a shout out to Dr. George Washington Carver. People thought he was nuts. I mean, this is a generation and a half before Rodale. And so he's telling farmers literally to uh, let their land rest out of cash crop for a little while, put some legumes in there because legumes, as we know, are best friends with bacteria. And they fix nitrogen fix instead nitrogen. of fertilizer. Exactly. Right? He was getting people to go and muck out swamps to make compost piles. I mean, he literally started qu quoting Bible verses to get folks convinced that this is what God wanted them to do because it didn't make any logical How sense. How did he figure it out? Was it from his... It's from traditional African and indigenous practices. Ah bringing them into the university. So he said, you know, whatever, you know, God says, whatever you do unto the least of these, you do unto me. And God's talking about the earthworm. So come here over here. And his model was really neat because he would go out to the most decrepit farm in the county, do an extreme farm makeover with regenerative practices, and then invite everyone over to see the model and then move to the next county. So that was the beginning of extension agencies in this yeah, country. That's and, and we're building on it now.
So great. I mean, it's so, so great. And, you know, I remember reading a story about this guy who, who came up from the city with his Air Jordans and didn't want to get out of the oh, car. Oh, Dijon Carter. Yeah, I can because tell story. <laughs> he didn't want to get his, his sneakers dirty. And uh, he went to, underwent a, quite a transformation. Can you just tell a story? Because I think it's so, it's so cool. So hi, Dijor. Um, so Dijor <laughs> Carter um, is now a grown person, but as a young, as a teenager, he did come out of the farm. He was afraid a bear would eat him, so he didn't want to get out of the van. Uh, but, so this is somebody who's never been out of the city. Yeah, he had not ever been to a farm before. And so, you know, when we all went on the tour, that was even scarier because if we're leaving him alone, we eventually convinced him to get out of the van. And in order to protect his sneakers from getting dirty, he uh, took them off and went barefoot. And he had an experience where once his barefoot touched the ground, you know, a memory of his grandmother entered through his foot up to his heart. And she had once gardened with him in the city, put worms in his hand. And so he, you know, softened at that moment and ended up telling the whole group the story like in tears about, you know, miss, I never thought this place had anything to do with me, but it sure does. You know, it sure does. And um, that's just one of the thousands of stories of. Of, of the land just calling us home. We don't even have to do anything. You just yeah. touch her. She it's us so home. true. I mean, I, you know, I kind of came into this in college where I, I ended up going to this summer program called the Institute for Social Ecology, which was all about sort of understanding the, the challenges we're facing environmentally to our land, to, you know, women's rights, you know, various injustices. And, you know, one of the courses I took was biological agriculture. They didn't call mm. it regenerative back then, but it was all about intercropping, cover crops, you know, natural pest control through, you know, various plants that you can use like marigolds to repel pests. It was fascinating. I learned so much and, uh, you know, we made compost and we, it was like, and, and then I began studying these books like Soil and Health and which was from Sir Albert Howard, who was a, a British guy who helped start the ag- organic agriculture movement and uh, One Straw Revolution and, and mm-hmm. all these books, Wendell Berry's Unsettling America. And it just really shaped my thinking. So as I became a doctor, like all that was like in there, right? It was all sort of the underneath, um, you know, my, my thinking about how, how we need to be in relation to the land. But what's really occurred to me now, you know, on the other end of 30 years of that is seeing all these chronically ill patients that are sick from the food they're eating. And then I realized that I can't stay in my office treating patients because it's going to be a never-ending stream mm. unless we go upstream and fix the food system and fix farming and everything coming from that. And you know, one of the most exciting things is not you're not just sort of you know making compost and building community square agriculture and training people, but you're politically active. You you actually help get, I, I think it passed, but a provision in the food in the farm bill, which is a monster bill, to get community supported agriculture paid for with. Uh, farm bill funds. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, exactly. Um, How did you do that? (laughs) I think I was... Nothing um, is done in Washington. I had the audacious boldness to stand up. Then um, the director of the FSA was speaking at a conference I was at. FSA is... Uh, Farm Service Administration. And I got in line for the comment period and said something about how it was impossible for farmers to accept SNAP the way that it was set up, which is the, you know, formerly known as food stamps. And she actually followed up with me. And so we ended up getting a petition going. You know, we got some allies who were lobbyists to support us. And in the last farm bill, um, got a provision passed that makes it a bit easier for farmers to be able to accept SNAP for their CSAs. You can do advanced payments and vouchers and so forth. Again, very, very small drop in the bucket of everything that needs to be changed in the food system. But it did embolden us um, to create a policy platform and ask for more changes. So, so 
as someone who's literally doing this, not just talking about it like me. <laughs> uh, it I sounds mean, like you're doing a few things. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm working on the doctor stuff, but, yeah. uh, you know, we're in people in communities trying to deal with these issues. Um, you know, what would be the kinds of big changes in policy in, in, in around food and agriculture that you think are going to have the biggest impact? Things that we should I have really so much trouble on. answering that question because I have about a hundred things that need to change okay, in terms start of policy. With the first but 50. I'll, um, <laughs> start with the first 50. <laughs> I mean, from your end, I really think that uh, taxing, quote, junk food companies for their health impacts, the way that cigarette companies are taxed and held accountable would be a good step. You know, from the farmer end of things, we need to pass the Fairness for Farm Workers Act because we still haven't updated our labor laws and farm workers don't have overtime protections, minimum wage, right to a day off in seven, right to unionize, some very, very basic things in this country farm workers do not have. Yeah, just pause there for a sec because yeah. I just want to put in context. So there was a lot of labor abuses in this country at the early part of the 1900s. That's right. And there was a law passed, there was a couple of laws, the Fair Labor Act and another one that, that were designed to protect workers, minimum wage, fair working conditions, you know, removing abuse and so forth. But the exclusion within that was, and this was like 1938. Okay, so we're talking like, I don't know how many, it's like, what is that, 80 years ago? Uh, it has not been addressed that the people who are working on farms and the food system were not protected by those laws. Exactly, because they were black. Because, because the Southern Democrats right. would not vote right. for the bill. It was introduced originally. That's right as including everyone, but the Southern Democrats parties were switched then, um, would not vote for it if it included black people. And we've, you know, we updated social security, but we haven't updated the labor laws to include everybody. And so and that's are the, important. And there's more people in the food and farm system as laborers, as workers, than any other industry in the United States. Mm -hmm. And they are the poorest, the most at risk for disease, mm -hmm. the most likely to be harmed by farming and chemicals, the most in need of aid. So mm -hmm. we're actually as taxpayers paying for their Medicare and all the services that they need. And we're also helping to support the food system as it is by using the tipping system, which was sort of designed also as a part of this whole legacy of racism in the food system, right? So can you talk more about that? Exactly. You're probably exactly. surprised that a doctor is talking about all this stuff. <laughs> I can see that look well, on your it's face. Definitely like... <laughs> all, it's absolutely all connected. And you know, it wasn't until this year, 2019, that the Fairness for Farm Workers Act was introduced to actually address some of those things. Mm -hmm. It's been uh, mostly addressed to this to date at the state level. So mm -hmm. you know, California and New York have some labor protections um, or through corporations. If you look at what the Immokalee workers did or the Milk with Dignity campaign, they essentially tried to hold the corporate buyers accountable, Wendy's, Taco Bell, Ben and Jerry's by saying you should pay more for your milk, your tomatoes, and then we'll make sure that that gets to the farmers as a sir, you know, like sir extra on their wages yeah. as well as farm worker education. Wait, but wait, it should I'm be gonna, a law. I'm going to pass, not let that pass. You talked about the Immokalee food workers, which mm -hmm. basically were poor migrant farmers mm -hmm. who rose up together, mm -hmm. created a coalition and demanded that the Fast food companies pay more for tomatoes. Exactly. And 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 what? A dollar a bushel. <laughs> a dollar a bushel more, and they in and the way they got them to do that was through massive campaigns and protests, embarrassing these companies. Exactly. And they agreed to do it, except for a couple of them. And I think that that to me is such a hopeful example because it means a bunch of people with no power, with no rights, with no money can change the system. Absolutely. And I, I thought that was the best. 
Anyway, sorry to interrupt you. Keep going about the food policies. No, that's fine. I think that's fine. <laughs> we got, we got another think, 98 to go. <laughs> okay. Well, I'll just mention one more. And I, you know, I briefly touched on this about how um, the USDA is responsible for the food system for helping take care of farmers. And there's all of these programs from land grant universities to credit crop insurance, disaster relief that are supposed to go to farmers. And right now they're going almost entirely to white farmers and to commodity crop farmers. So we need to restructure the way all of those subsidies work to make sure it's equitable, that those of us who are growing, quote, healthy foods like vegetables and fruits aren't just relegated to this tiny little sliver called specialty crops, mm, no you know, where it's like, joke. <laughs> you know, corn and soy are getting all the money. And so we have to we have to flip it. You know, even the fact that to be organic, you have to go through a certification process and pay money. But to trash the planet, you can just do it. You know, I think it's a fundamental frame shift on how we think about regulation and subsidies. Yeah, it's really putting the true cost of what we're doing into it, right? The true, mm -hmm. true cost of drinking a can of soda isn't probably a dollar. It's probably $100 when you count exactly. all the effects of how it affected the land to farm the corn syrup and the processing and how it affects people's health. And, you know, it's just, it's all, it's all yeah. one big story. You know, I think we, you know, we, we have a moment, I think, in history where things are starting to shift. You know, people like you are giving voice to these issues. There's, you know, traditional white, you know, Republican farmers in North Dakota who are raising these issues and changing the way they're doing things. There's on both sides. I see this as sort of awareness about how we start to address this, because if we don't, we're literally robbing our future and our children's future. And and I don't think people understand the urgency of this, because it's like, what do you mean farming, food, whatever, there's plenty of food, but we're actually in a massive crisis. I mean, we, the way we farm and the fact that we don't have uh, supports, agricultural supports for transitioning to regenerative agriculture means that we're perpetuating the same system. We're incentivizing the intensive use of fertilizers and pesticides, which are damaging the soil and causing runoff. And like you mentioned, creating mm -hmm. dead zones that kill 212,000 metric tons of fish every year in the Gulf of Mexico. It's, like, mm -hmm. it's just like this whole ripple effect. And so unless we start to sort of think about this holistically, we're not going to solve it. And I think I, I'm hopeful because I'm seeing big companies that are being pushed into this by this consumer activism. Like I just met with the guy who runs the Danone sort of regenerative ag program. Now it may be all talk, but I think they are serious because they see one, how their supply chain is going to go away. Like if we have 60 years of soil left, like we're screwed unless we mm -hmm. fix this, right? Absolutely. And there are some countries that are starting to figure it out. You know, Costa Rica pays its farmers for ecosystem services. So if you're creating pollinator habitat, um, you know, aquifer recharge services, sequestering carbon in your soil, you actually get paid a monthly stipend, you know, according to the measurements and the metrics that they've set up. And I think we as a nation can learn from that, study that and figure out how to uh, compensate our farmers for stewarding the public trust. Okay, you just hit on a massive idea that I don't think people understand, which is ecosystem services and why they're important. So just a little background for people. We use up about $124 trillion a year of ecosystem services, meaning we're, we're extracting resources from the earth, we're damaging the earth in ways that cost $124 trillion. That's more than the economy of the entire world, mm -hmm. right? And so what, I've never heard this idea before. I mean, I, I, I thought of how can we do it? I never heard that Costa Rica is actually doing it. So here we have a model for redressing the injustices that we're doing to nature by actually paying for restoration of all the things you mentioned, right? How, how can we sort of push that more? I mean, I think we need to get political will behind it and um, and develop those proposals. But there, 
there really is no other way, you know, because right now farmers are aging out. It is nearly impossible to make a living selling vegetables on a small scale. Yeah. You know, 95% of small farmers are relying on second, third jobs. And so we have to, as a public, figure out how to stop subsidizing the stuff that's trashing the planet and our health and start, quote, subsidizing the things that are bringing life. And so if you could get, you know, $200 an acre a year for increasing your organic matter by 1%, or $200 an acre for bringing back a pollinator species and and we have a peer audit system, you know, that becomes an income stream that's actually incentivizing the behaviors that we want to have on our land. Yeah, I mean, if if you add 1% organic matter to your soil, you add 25,000 gallons of water per acre. 54,000 pounds of carbon per acre. (laughs) (laughs) Well, some people say that, you know, we could draw down carbon in the atmosphere to pre-industrial levels if we scale this up. And I I was talking, I was talking before about this farmer from North Dakota, Gabe Brown, that I was chatting with this morning. And I said, listen, you know, people love the idea of regenerative ag, but like they also criticize it as just not scalable, that we need it to feed the world. We need industrial agriculture. He's like, on the contrary, I produce far more food uh, with far more, side effects that are beneficial instead mm-hmm. of harmful and i make 20 times as much money <laughs> so it sounds like a win-win-win for everybody wow that's powerful i yeah. had seen a statistic that if you grow corn beans and squash together in a milpa three sisters you get 40 percent higher yield than if you grow things yeah. side by side because you have these synergistic effects between you know the nitrogen fixing legumes supporting the nitrogen hungry maize and so forth and so there is some data to back that up so exciting so i want to i want to ask you a hard question you may not have the answer to it but uh, is something I struggle with because I think, you know, in, in the poor communities and African-American, Latino communities, there's a level of internalized racism that I don't think people are aware of. And, and you know, for example, I have a friend who's an African-American guy and he went to visit his family in the South. He says, why are you eating that white people's food? You know, like, why are you eating healthy food? You know, and I, and I think, you know, I, I, I gave a talk in this community in Cleveland. This woman said, you know, like, I said, you know, you shouldn't drink sugar-sweetened beverages. It's, it's the biggest driver of weight gain. And she's like, well, what else am I going to drink? What is there to drink? And I'm like, water. <laughs> you know, and I was just like, there was there was really a lack of awareness that this is being done to them. I mean, people understand through Black Lives Matter that, you know, the police and the ju- judicial system targets African-Americans. There are more African-Americans in prisons today than there were slaves in America. Mm-hmm. So, but they don't get this this food injustice, racism, food oppression idea. What do you think about that? Am I off? Like, no, talk that's a about really it. good question. I mean, <laughs> internalized like, you- racism for maybe folks who don't know is is when the um, ideological white supremacy, the idea that white folks are inherently more worthy, deserving of life, smarter, capable, is actually internalized by people of color to believe those messages, to believe that we're not worthy of life, that we're not intelligent, that we're not you know, what sort of why bother, right? Because there can be a fatalism around what's possible in our own lives. And so I do think that that is is a tragedy that we in our communities need to heal from, really saying, you know, we believe that we will have tomorrow, that we will have grandchildren. And so let's think long-term instead of thinking about survival day to day. But fundamentally, we can't blame folks when you're literally living paycheck to paycheck. If you even get a paycheck, it's hard to think long-term. I do think as far as, you know, what foods we eat and white people food, there is a challenge in the quote good food movement around evangelizing certain types of food in a way that's not kale. culturally <laughs> sensitive. Like we do not need kale salad. Right, right. Greens are actually the foundation of a traditional African diet, yeah. but it might be different greens and it might, they might be cooked, you know, with a, a turkey neck and it's it's amaranth yeah. or cowloo or, or yeah, whatnot. Sure. And so I think that 
Um, I want to shout out the um, Old Ways folks and the African Heritage Food Pyramid and some of the work that they're doing around reclaiming our traditional diets that yes, are culturally right. relevant, um, as opposed to thinking we have to adopt, you know, yeah. someone else's ways of eating. Sure, I was, you know, I was on a rafting trip um, to to sort of address the tar sands mining that was going to destroy the Green River in Utah and the, you know the headwaters of the Colorado River. And, uh, you know, Robert F. Kennedy was there, you know, with Waterkeepers Alliance and there were a number of Native Americans there. There was a Hopi chief and his wife who were extremely overweight, diabetic and really unhealthy. I mean, he was throwing up just walking down to the boat because he was just so sick. And I'm like, hey, you know, you can, you can fix this. And he says, yeah, what do I have to do? He said, well, you have to sort of give up a lot of starch and sugar because that's what's causing this problem. And I, and I, I said, oh, that's going to be very hard. I'm like, why? Yeah, because you know we won't have our traditional ceremonial Hopi foods during our ceremonies. I'm like, what are those? He's like, cake, cookies, and pie. And I'm like, I don't think those were your traditional foods, you know. And he didn't. He just, even though he was a Hopi elder, even though he was, you know, a Hopi chief and living in Arabi, which is one of the oldest uh, continuously inhabited settlements in the United States, it was like it was news to him. And I was like, wow, that level of, you know, they call it Indian fry bread. It's just basically- It's commodity food. It's the government dumping all of this crap food on communities it's and true. then supplanting our traditional ways. And there is a really powerful movement right now. Um, the I Collective, the Indigenous Collective is part of it. Chef Sean Sherman is part of it, of really reclaiming indigenous diets, yeah. you know, localized, foraged, game-rich diets. And it's been powerful. Um, I remember there was a documentary that just came out. I'll find you the title later, but yeah, no, I, was, I see it. And I mean, I, I met this guy once, uh, I was visiting my daughter who lives in Utah and, uh, we went sort of canyoneering and on, and there was this Native American guy on our, on our little group. And we literally got, there was like a instant flood. Like there was like a flash rain and like, you know, all of a sudden you went from these dry canyons to like waterfalls as you're rappelling down and we got stranded and we were stuck sitting there talking in this like cliff somewhere. And we started chatting and he's like, you know, I was really overweight. I was diabetic. I was so unhealthy. And he's a, he's an obstetrician was working in a remote area in Vancouver. Mm -hmm. I mean, in uh, British Columbia off on an Island. And he was like, well, you know, I started thinking about what were my, you know, grandfathers eat and what, what were they doing? And I started eating that way and I lost all the weight and my diabetes went away and I feel great. You know, I think, but it's, and he was a fairly educated guy, but mm -hmm. like for the average, you know, African-American or Latino or, Native American, it's just, there's no awareness of this as, as far as I can see in, in, in this level of internalized racism. And how, how do we break that? Like, how do you, how do you approach these communities, you know, effectively to have that conversation? Yeah. I mean, I think that. I know it's a big question. <laughs> it is a huge question and it's really important. And I fundamentally think internalized racism cannot be addressed from the outside. It's addressed within the community. So if you look right. at the work that I mentioned of I Collective or Sean Sherman or um, you know, Brian Terry in the black community, a lot mm. of this work is under-resourced, underfunded. Mm -hmm. And there are black leaders and indigenous leaders who are trying to do that work of uprooting internalized racism and promoting traditional diets who don't even have a staff, right? They don't even have, they don't have a social media person. And so finding <laughs> ways to support what right. they're doing rather than thinking that folks who aren't from those communities need to like go change things for them. Yeah, I think that's right. I think, you know, I had this fantasy, of, you know, I'm speaking on Tuesday to a group of community pastors in Cleveland. And you know, I have a fantasy of saying, hey, you know, this is the next civil rights issue. Mm -hmm. I said, you know, I would love for every pastor in America to get up and say, how about we all boycott 
the people who are hurting us and killing our communities and stop drinking sugar sweetened beverages and soda. Like, I, I don't know if that's a dumb fantasy, but it's kind of like, I just feel like if, 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 and I, you know, I, it's interesting because I, I went and I talked to Bernice King and she's like, yeah, you know, nonviolence also means nonviolence to yourself. Mm hmm. But the sad thing is that these communities are often, you know, co-opted by big food. And, uh, you know, the NAACP and the Hispanic Federation oppose soda taxes. Why? Because they're funded by these companies. Coca-Cola provides $2.5 million or $2.1 million to the NAACP. You know, and because so it punishes the wrong person. You know, the soda right. tax punishes the right. consumer right. who doesn't have exactly. access. It doesn't actually right. punish the soda company. Exactly. And so, you know, really so it's very out, regressive. It's a regressive tax. Yes. Exactly. And so really thinking about, well, if we do want to address the harm, how do we tax that company for its harm and use those dollars to support these community based Absolutely. initiatives? And I think incentives work better, too. So mm -hmm. actually providing, you know, instead of your snap dollars, you know, being a dollar, you know, equal for vegetables, you maybe make it a dollar fifty yeah, yeah. or two two dollars for every dollar you spend on vegetables, but maybe only it's worth fifty cents when you buy soda. Mm -hmm. You know, does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's really important to make sure that communities who are struggling with poverty because of institutional racism are not subject to uh, lack of choice. Because then what you have is yeah. you have a situation where people who have wealth get to choose whatever they want to do including self-harm and then people who are poor not because it's their fault right but right. because of history of institutional racism are regulated and constricted in their choice and 100%. so i really think that it's about holding the corporations accountable rather than focusing so much on consumer behavior down okay so um you know in your book uh farming while black you 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 had a photo in your book and the caption read, to free ourselves, we must feed ourselves. So why is this such an important thing? Why is the land so important for liberation of oppressed peoples? Yeah, I mean, we've talked a lot today about the role of the land in providing food and sustenance. Something I didn't know until, you know, the past, maybe five years ago is the role of land in all civil rights. If you look at the civil rights movement, it was black farmers who were really the backbone. They provided all of the land uh, for meetings, for uh people gathering to to live and stay while they were doing voter registration campaigns. Mm. They provided the armed protection. They oh, leveraged wow. Atlanta's collateral for bail money to get people out of jail when they were locked up. And so quite literally, you know, wow. it's not like you could rent the Sheraton for your NAACP convention <laughs> in Mississippi. So the black farmers yep. were the ones who provided the material sustenance for that movement. Um, as one of my elders, Baba Halfkenny, would say, without black farmers, there would be no civil rights movement. And so I think about owning our own land, our own businesses as really the basis, not just for our material health, but also our capacity to resist and our capacity to make ourselves free. Well, you are an inspiration. You are an extraordinary woman who's doing extraordinary things. And I think lessons that you have learned and the things that you're sharing about how we got here and how we can get out of here are just amazing. So thank you for being. Well, thanks for having me. Thanks for the, the great Doctor's questions. Pharmacy. <laughs> you know, all right. You've been listening to the doctor's pharmacy. Um, I encourage you to get Leah's book, Farming While Black. It's an extraordinary testament to what she's doing and the story of how we can get out of where we are. Um, and if you really loved it, please leave a comment, share with your friends and family, um, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll see you next time on The Doctor's Pharmacy. Thank you. Hi, everyone. It's Dr. Mark Hyman. So two quick things. Number one, thanks so much for listening to this week's podcast. It really means a lot to me. If you love the podcast, I'd really appreciate you sharing with your friends and family. 
Second, I want to tell you about a brand new newsletter I started called Mark's Picks. Every week, I'm going to send out a list of a few things that I've been using to take my own health to the next level. This could be books, podcasts, research that I found, supplement recommendations, recipes, or even gadgets. I use a few of those. And if you'd like to get access to this free weekly list, all you have to do is visit drhyman.com forward slash picks. That's drhyman.com forward slash picks. I'll only email you once a week, I promise, and I'll never send you anything else besides my own recommendations. So just go to drhyman.com forward slash picks, that's P-I-C-K-S, to sign up free today. Hi, everyone. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Just a reminder that this podcast is for educational purposes only. This podcast is not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or other qualified medical professional. This podcast is provided on the understanding that it does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. If you're looking for help in your journey, seek out a qualified medical practitioner. If you're looking for a functional medicine practitioner, you can visit ifm.org and search their Find a Practitioner database. It's important that you have someone in your corner who's trained, who's a licensed healthcare practitioner, and can help you make changes, especially when it comes to your health.